reading of God's word, this is Philippians chapter 2, immediately following that Christ hymn that we just read responsively, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, all that has come before, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of truth so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Father, indeed, we are thankful for this word living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we pray as you now open this word to us through the preaching of your servant Addison, we ask that you would guide his mouth, that he would say only those things that are permissible uh, by you and by this text, and that he would say all that we must hear. And Father, we pray too that you would uh, work in our hearts, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, uh, that this would not be just a momentary diversion on a Sunday morning, but this would indeed be a transformative time with you as our Father, your word in our hearts. This is our prayer. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up, my mom used to really help me out when I wasn't feeling well. I would come to her and say, Mom, my belly hurts, or I've got a headache. And she would say this one phrase that I've just come to, to own, treat the symptoms. What are the symptoms? So, of course, she was helping me realize that you don't take Pepto-Bismol when you have a headache, and you don't take ibuprofen when you have a stomachache. There are certain uh, medicines that help you for different symptoms. And of course, this was really helpful growing up when I lived at home before going off to college. I would just ask her if I didn't feel well, Mom, here are my symptoms. What should I do? She was like my personal pharmacist to a degree. Then in college, it was still helpful. I would call her up and say, Mom, I'm not feeling well. Here are the symptoms. She'd treat the symptoms. What are the symptoms? At that point, she probably assumed I knew exactly where to go for what things I needed, but I did not. I was a college student. I was very oblivious to those sorts of things. And even today, still, she will, when we're talking to her, tell her about our kids not feeling well. If we're not feeling well, she'll still say, treat the symptoms. Treat the symptoms. The symptoms will lead you to a better understanding of where the sickness lies. And to a degree, that's what Paul is doing in the letter to the Philippians. He's pointing out these different symptoms that he sees. And he's saying, treat 
your symptoms. Now, to be fair to Paul and the Philippians, we don't know the specific sicknesses or illnesses that they may have, but we have some clues in our text and other texts going all the way back to chapter 1. You can go all the way forward towards the end of the book. We see different places where Paul is admonishing the brothers and sisters there in the Philippian church in Philippi to treat their symptoms. There seems to be some disagreement. He's calling in in chapter 1 there at the very end of it. He's saying, look, you need to come together, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. And he says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had now here that I still have. So he's saying, look, there's conflict that's going to be a part of our life. Treat the symptoms. In our text today, there's certain things. We'll, we'll touch on each one of them as we go through it. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning. He's pointing at some symptoms. And as he continues on, chapter 3, chapter 4, there's other things. He even calls people out by name. Andrew mentioned last week that he wasn't going to call people out by name, and I will do. I won't do that. I won't call anyone out by name. It wouldn't go well. But treat the symptoms. Paul is giving us clues to these symptoms. Dissension, distrust, there's debates, there's arguing that's happening within the church and certainly around the church. Right? He's not just focusing only on the Philippians. Remember the people that were preaching out of rivalry, out of selfish ambition. So he's even talking to the broader church and saying, you all need to treat your symptoms. Here's how one commentator puts it when we think about the context of Philippians. He says that this context of our particular passage, really all of chapter 2, he says, suggests that this command to uh, hold fast to one another, to, where is it, therefore, beloved, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This command, thereby returning to 2.5, is to be understood in a corporate sense. The entire church, which had grown spiritually ill, is charged now with taking whatever steps are necessary to restore itself to health, integrity, and wholeness. That's the charge that Paul has for the Philippians, and that's the charge that the Spirit has for us, is to treat our symptoms. Where is there disunity within our body, between one another, Within the church as a whole, there's a call at the heart of this passage for further unity. The instructions are not to grumble, not to argue, not to question. There's different translations of that word there. To work out your salvation, y'all's salvation, a very corporate sense, together with fear and trembling. To hold fast to the word of life together, which is the power by which we can do any of this. This text really flows out of what we just read earlier, 6 through 11, the heart of this passage, as Andrew said. If you read it all together, you get this sense that when you're in Christ, treating the symptoms is just a part of what you do. It's not to be bemoaned, it's not to be something that we just kind of grumble through and wish we didn't have to do. It's something that we must do as a body together. It's a command to live spiritually healthy lives that will have an impact in their day. 
both in the day of the Philippians, but in our day as well. See, by serving others through love and good deeds, we're living out the gospel together. By working on our health as a congregation through love, through the service to one another, considering others higher than ourselves, we are living out the good news that Jesus Christ, our King, came to save sinners like you and me, which is the real thrust today. Because of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, which we saw last week, we strive together for other-focused living. In other words, our life together is to represent the humility of Christ. We're to lead lives of humility in the face of struggle, of persecution, of disagreements, of times when we don't see eye to eye amidst cultural, societal pressures, pressures even within our own church, within our own body. So today we're going to look at this idea of humility, which I think is really at the, the just deep below what Paul is saying here to the Philippians. What kind of humility does it take to do these sorts of things, to live life together? Why do we live with lives of humility? What's the aim? What are we aiming for through that humility? And of course, what's the power of that humility? Those are our three points today. So what type of humility are we thinking about? Well, it's others focus and it's to work out salvation. So two types of humility is true humility and there's a saving face humility. You know, the latter has you preach Christ out of rivalry. You're just trying to save face. You're trying to look a certain way. You're trying to, you know, you should have humility. And so you're just trying to save your face by acting that way. I think that's a part of what Paul is getting at when he says that. I don't think it's all of it. I think it's a part of it. But then the former, the, the true humility, is a considering others higher than yourselves. Considering others first. It's exactly what Paul said just back in chapter 2. We read it as we were reading that together. Do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only to his look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Paul is saying some very hard things here, and he's repeating himself again because this must be a symptom that is clear for him to see from as far away as he is. And he softens the blow when he comes. He says, Beloved, the people that I love. Family. This is a familial term. And Paul says, you as a family are to count one another higher than the other. Don't think of yourself before you're thinking of this person or this person or that person. But family, come together. In the Friday letter that we had, Andrew was coming through some of our, uh, our vision and our values and you know, welcome others. This, welcome, this idea that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. When you look around, this is the family that God has given us. The beloved of Christ together. The point, by using that terminology there at the beginning of our passage today, therefore my beloved, is that Paul wants them to be reminded that they're a family. 
They have to work these things together, and it softens that blow. You are people who are loved by God and also loved by Paul. It's a favorite adjective of Paul's when he uses this. You see it in Romans and 1 Corinthians as well. But what is Paul calling this family to do through humility? The verse goes on, so as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's been a lot of spilled ink and commentaries and books on this idea of work out your own salvation and fear and trembling. I've heard a lot of different um, teachings and, and even sermons on this idea. I'm sure you all have come across different and competing sometimes ideas on what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To some degree, you've heard Andrew and I both say this and others as well, our English language really fails us here. When it says, work out your salvation, it really should say, work out y'all's salvation. It's a very good Texan word. Work out y'all's salvation. All of y'all together need to work out your salvation. So then we have to unpack that idea. What does he mean by salvation? Is he saying work, that we all together work out our eternal hope and glory, our future glory in Christ? Are we working that out together? Maybe, but it seems like here in the context that that word that is being translated as salvation in our, in our, our Bibles is getting at this sense of spiritual health. You know, work out your spiritual health together. Again, remember, he is pointing out symptoms and saying, treat your symptoms. And one of your symptoms is show, or your symptoms together are showing me that you are spiritually ill to a certain degree. So work that out together. Work it out as a community. And I think that when we seek to understand the text in that way, and I'll read a a quote from a commentary here that helps us a little bit more. It it fights against two different um, ways that we can think about this text that I think we often do. One is a hyper-individualistic way. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation, Addison, with fear and trembling. Work out your standing with God with fear and trembling. You put so much pressure on the individual, the one person following Jesus to save themselves. It's a works righteousness. This could not be what Paul was talking about. Just before this, he is talking about communal work. He is saying how you all have been brought into this community together by Christ. For him to go from this corporate communal sense to a highly individualistic sense just doesn't fit. And there are other texts and clues that point to this. Some of Paul's other teachings and other places. You think about Romans in particular, chapter 5. You've been justified. You've been made right in God's eyes. You didn't do anything. You've been justified. So it can't be a hyper-individualistic sense in which Paul is saying. But the other is this sort of synergistic belief that God and I work together to save me. God does some work. I do some work. And together, we save myself. Again, it's very hyper-individualistic, It's putting a lot of pressure and focus on the individual, and it's completely missing the corporate sense and the plurality of the words used in this verse. But also, 
if it misses the salvation translation. That God is, yes, working in our lives, and we are to respond by working out the spiritual health of our church together. Here's the way that one commentator talks about how people tend to forget the next verse when they're reading this. We'll read it together. It says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who's working in you all to do this. God is working through your will. He's working through your community, the people around you. He's working through the things that you desire. He is at work in your community, and he is going to do it. But as awesome, this is what a commentary says, but as awesome as our call to work out our own salvation is, we're not left to our own devices. It's God who works in you both to will and work in his good pleasure. We know from common experience that there are two aspects to every conscious action, the hidden and the outward work. But God does more than merely strengthen our willing and doing. Paul's explanation goes deeper. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. Again, Paul is saying here, and what this guy is getting at, is that God's working through us as individuals, yes, but together corporately, that we might be working out our spiritual health. So here's that note on translating salvation to translate it as your own salvation is ambiguous and can lead to a misunderstanding of what Paul actually intended to say. Paul is not here concerned with the eternal welfare of the soul of the individual as though he were addressing issues of the perseverance of the saints. The individual believer is not now being called to self-activity to the, to the active pursuit of the will of God to a personal application of salvation. Rather, the context suggests that this command, thereby returning to 2.5, is to be understood in a corporate sense. The entire church, which had grown spiritually ill, is charged with taking whatever steps are necessary to restore itself to health, integrity, and wholeness. So this is a corporate sense. This is a thing that you and I do together. Together we work in fear and trembling, and the power of God, and the way that he will move through our individual beings, but our collective sense as well, to treat the symptoms. We address each other out of love when contention arises. To assume the best of one another when perhaps on first blush it may not look so great. To really work at keeping the peace and purity of the church first and foremost in our following Jesus. Paul will address this stuff specifically here in a few verses, so we're going to leave that for another minute or two. And we're going to finish by looking at that last part, that God works. God is working through us. The final thing for us to consider at this point through verse 13 is that God ultimately works through all things and all people. What does it say? To both will and to work for his good pleasure. The point that Paul wants us to see is that God is at work in our community. 
through our collective will and goodwill for the glory of God. And of course, if God is glorified, then we will benefit from that. I think what Paul wants the Philippian congregation to see through this exhortation is the call to just work together through humility, through a true sense of humility, of counting others above yourself, thinking of the other person before you think of yourself. And there are so many application points to this, whether it's in a conversation we really feel like you just need to stand your ground because of a particular belief that you have about maybe the way the world works or maybe the way we should do things. But instead of thinking of how would the other person, how can I glorify God and think of this other person before I respond with this comment? Perhaps it's in decision-making you have a hand in deciding something for a group of people. Maybe it's a, one of our ministries in our church. Maybe it's a partner ministry. Maybe it's in your family or at your workplace. There are lots of places where you can make decisions as a follower of Jesus and thinking about the people on behalf of which you're making that decision. How will they think about this? How will it land? What are the, the odd things that might come out of a response to what I'm deciding? I'm trying to be a bit vague. But I'm doing that on purpose because I think each one of us has different applications in mind. There are so many ways that through true humility and resting in Jesus that you and I can work out our spiritual health as Christ's church together. We can still have tough conversations. It's not calling us to just slide everything under the rug and not talk about it. That's worse. But it's to have healthy conversations regarding the issues that surround us, spiritual, physical, societal, and being willing to think of the person across from us before we think of what I want, before I think about what Addison wants have I thought about what John and Joe and Mary and Sue and Billy and Lynette and all these other folks, have I thought about how this might land with them? We're to seek that type of humility. But what's our aim through humility? What are we aiming for? So as we continue on, read past just a few verses. There's a lot more we could have said about 12 through 13. There's a lot more that we could talk about if you're interested. There's some things that we just don't have time to deal with, and it'll be true for the rest of the passage as well, 14 through 18. What are we, what are we aiming for? So he says, In humility, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. And then he keeps going. Paul's great at run-on sentences. That's why I like him. I like run-on sentences too. But I'm always, I'm getting corrected for them. I have yet to tell Paul he needs to stop that. But, and the aim of our humility is not just for our own benefit. Of course, it is for our working out as a community. And we are part of that community. So it is for our benefit, but not only ours. But it's also for the other and the outsider. There's two things here that I want us to see. 
is that Paul is really going to get at the, the symptoms. He's going to say, stop your grumbling and arguing. Stop it. And he's also considering Paul's real heart, his deep desire, which is for those outside of the community, those that are maybe not following Jesus or following a caricature of Christianity. Okay, so a couple things about this grumbling. You know, Paul goes straight there. He says, do everything without grumbling and arguing or questioning. There's different uh, ways that that is translated. The good thing for you and I is that it's not really something we have to deal with anymore. Over the last thousands of years, the church has really figured this out. We don't grumble, do we? It's just not true. I wish it was for today's sake, but it's not true. So we could spend a lot of time here kind of picking apart what is going on and really digging in. But I just want to highlight a couple of things to think about as we think about grumbling, complaining, arguing, and questioning. One is that we live in a culture of grumbling. I think we all do this. I've read uh, recently, just consequentially, a book that this person in the book said, to be human is to grumble. To be human is to grumble. I thought that is a very odd thing to say. But they're saying that based on evidence of things that they see around them. We grumble a lot. We grumble about the weather. Ah, oh, there was frost on my window this morning. I should have started my car. Urgh, I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm grumbling about it. Uh, this relationship just really is not going the way that I really want it to go. I wish that they would just X, Y, and Z. I can't believe they said that on Facebook. If any of you get on your social media later today and just scroll through it, I bet you'll find a few places and a few people that are grumbling. If you don't, please send me an email and I'd like to know who you follow, and I will then get back on social media and follow those people. But we tend to grumble, don't we? Of course, when Paul wrote this, he was trying to be evocative. The words that he was using would draw the Philippians' minds back to Exodus 16, where the Israelites grumbled right after they left Egypt. They left Egypt, where they were slaves, where they were at the will of Pharaoh, where they had a torrid lifestyle. And immediately, they grumble about the food. They grumble about the conditions. They grumble about their leaders. They want to go back to Egypt. Paul is wanting the Philippians to think about this. He's saying, do you hear yourself? You sound like that. You're grumbling, but the Lord has provided so much for you. The other thing about grumbling that I think is why we tend to do it is that it gives us power to a degree. It allows us to stand up to something or someone, albeit in a very passive-aggressive way. It allows us to dictate how we think and feel about a particular person, experience, or situation. My grumbling empowers me. It's our way of getting back at people or situations, movements. We can extract revenge on people. Again, albeit passive aggressively and without real conflict. You know, Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. He's saying, draw 
in some sense for us, really look up to the verses 6 through 11. Draw down from that your situation, your status before Christ. You do not in yourself have the power to not grumble about anything, but in Christ, consider the things that he has given you and done for you, taking you out of a kingdom of darkness and put you in a kingdom of light. He has brought you from death to life. Why would you grumble? Why would you grumble? You know, in some sense, Paul wants them, and this is good for us, to think about the laments. This is a true way of dealing with the hard situations, which is why we grumble. These are hard situations. There are things that do not go our way, things that we do not like, and so we complain or grumble about them. But Paul and the scriptures are calling us, look, that's, it's okay to recognize those things to see that the world is indeed broken, that there are hard things, that you are dealing with messy people. And guess what? They're dealing with a messy person too. And we can lament these things, which means we can cry out to God, say, God, why is it this way? Oh, I long for the day of which it is not. And in you, I put my trust, not in myself, not in my situation. I lament of this. I'm not grumbling about it. I'm not complaining about it. I'm not arguing about it. I'm lamenting this. I'm getting on my knees and saying, Lord, this is tough. I don't know how to talk to my neighbor about this. I don't know how to talk to the person sitting at the other end of the aisle at church on Sunday morning about this. It's hard, but in you, I trust because you are sovereign. You are good. You've given us Jesus who holds all things together, even that conversation. So we can lament it, but we can trust through that lament that God is working. See, a grumble completely dismisses God's goodness to us. We wallow in ingratitude, and instead through lament we trust in God, see his mercy and grace in our lives and at different times, and we cry to him. So within our community, our aim is that we don't grumble and argue and complain, but also that we would be, as Paul puts it, lights in the darkness. That amidst this crooked and twisted generation, among whom, so you are a part of this group, you are a part of the people, you are not the twisted and and crooked people, but you're among them, you shine as lights in the world, so they're looking to you. They're looking at you because you shine Christ. This is Paul's deep desire. His deep desire is that people would come to know Christ. The Jews and Gentiles alike would know and love and adore Jesus as their Savior. And he's saying it's through you that this twisted generation will see the love of Christ. He expresses this through the truth that they live Christ-like lives it's not a passive thing. Oftentimes we'll hear that, that phrase, if you build it, they will come. That's partly true. We need to build something that people are attracted to, that they want to be a part of. So if you don't have that, then the saying completely falls on its head. And it doesn't matter how much work you do to show people the love of Christ and invite them into that relationship, they'll never want to come and be a part of it. So you have to build something 
that is attractive. You have to show them that unity that Paul is really striving for here. Do we have that? Is that something that someone feels when they come and join our fellowship in our midst? But then you don't just go stand at the window and wait for your friends to come outside and play. That's what it feels like. Man, I really want to play with my friends. I'm going to stand at the window and wait until they come outside. And then when they come outside, I'll go play. But instead, we are to go out to take what we have, this unity, this love in Christ, to the watching world, to project it as the stars are projected in the midnight sky. You've got to go up to the UP to really get the sense of this. There's so much light pollution. But the stars illuminate the sky. And it's the only way in which people can see in the darkness. And that's what we're called to do, to go out, to bring that light. It's not us. It's not Addison. It's not Lynette. It's not any of you as individuals. It's Christ shining through us. That's what he's getting at. He goes on and says, you can do this by what? By holding fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. In the scriptures, in the Bible, in the word that we have been given, that Christ is our King and our Savior, that is how we can do this. That is what people will be attracted to. And so it leads us to not build walls to keep people out. It leads us not to assume the negative about people, but to aim at sharing what we have to share which is a community built on the love of Jesus, the one who considered equality with God nothing. And he lowered himself all the way to death on a cross that you and I and others, people that are not here that you can probably name in your head, might know that they are so loved by God that they have a mediator And what's the result? What's the power of all this? This is the last thing as we wrap up. If you go on through these verses, Paul says, you know, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, the final day, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, you Philippians, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. Paul embodies joy. He embodies joy in suffering. He embodies joy in truth. He embodies joy in preaching the gospel. He embodies joy. Now he relates to these other churches amidst their struggles as they're figuring out what their sickness is. He just embodies joy. And all of it is rejoicing in Christ. Is Paul crazy? How does he do all this? He's not. He remembers the saying is trustworthy and true, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners for which I am the foremost. He recognizes the work of Jesus in his own life and what it has done, where it has gotten him. And he can rejoice in that. He didn't deserve anything. He knew that. Yet he has been given everything Humility reminds us that we have been brought into this new life in Christ, and we've been brought into it together, and the result is joy. A rejoicing in suffering, a rejoicing in hard conversations, a rejoicing in working out our spiritual health 
together for the sake of Christ and the glory of God. Paul sees the Philippians as priests. This is a really interesting note. See, it's not Paul saying the work that you are doing, Philippians, when people see these things about you, is complementing the work that I have done. Instead, he says, the work that you're doing, I'm just a compliment to it. It's you first and foremost as priests. It's not just Paul the apostle. It's that community of Philippians. They are doing an amazing work. So it's not just me or Andrew or staff. It's not just the PCA. It's the work that Christ Church, a church in Grand Rapids, when it comes together in unity and love and strength and power for the sake of Christ, holding him at the center, is when people see that, that's what's attractive. That's where the joy comes in, the joy that we will share together and the joy that people will have when they join us. Because of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, because he was willing to go to the cross and was then exalted, and every knee will bow to him, every tongue confess that he is Lord, because of that, you and I are to strive to live that same humility as a corporate body, loving one another, seeking for the peace and purity, the unity of our church, so that others might see that, be attracted to it, and we might have joy in Christ together. That is what we are invited into. The driving reality is in Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It feels like we're just scratching the surface in this text. It's only a few verses, but there's so much for us to consider. We pray that you would continue your work amongst us. Continue to bring us together in love and good deeds, serving one another, seeking the welfare of those around us, both those that are sitting here today and those that are not. But help us in all this to remember to keep Christ central because that is not only the reason but the power by which we can do this work. To a degree, it's why it's difficult to kind of chunk up the text, separate 1 through 11 and 12 through 18. We know we have to do it, but when we put it all together, we see that Christ at the center is what gives us this community, this life of humility. Would you be so kind and merciful to, to see that work continue here at Christ Church, that we might shine in the darkness we might work out our salvation together and that we might glorify you in all that we do. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.